Welcome to On My Walk, the reading podcast that helps you capture reading's aha moments and apply them to your life and leadership. Hey, I'm reading Homo Deus by Yuval Harari. In one word, fascinating. I suspect that I'm going to devote most of next week to his book, but I'm hesitant to say much about it until I finish it, in part because I want to understand his thinking about tomorrow. Harari's book is entitled A Brief History of Tomorrow, and in part because I'm disagreeing with some of the presuppositions that undergird his work, so I want to hear him out before I say anything. I'm also working through two other books entitled Killing Jesus, one by Stephen Mansfield, the other by Bill O'Reilly and Martin Duggard, and both are excellent. But today, I want to go back to Vietnam, an Epic Tragedy by Max Hastings, a book I read earlier this year and which I've already recorded four podcasts, but I've got a lot more I could share from that book. Let me put this clip in its context. The year is 1972. The Vietnam War is nearly over. The U.S. had begun Linebacker II, the largest B-52 bombing raid of the war. Now, Linebacker II is aimed at destroying the morale of Hanoi. And in 11 days, 700, get this, 729 B-52 sorties dropped 15,237 tons of bombs on North Vietnam. Well, tactical aircraft delivered another 5,000. Now, we have to imagine what it would look like to see 155 B-52 bombers crowded into five miles of parking space before taking off to consume 2 million gallons of jet fuel a day. Well, were the raids effective? Yes and no. President Nixon thought and said, we'll bomb the bejesus out of them. Well, those at the Anderson Air Force Base on Guam, they thought that for their part, the war was all but over. And what they were going to find out is that was not the case. Instead, they had to make a large number of raids on Hanoi. And Hastings writes this, Most crews drop their bombs only after a nine-hour passage to targets, that is, crews that were traveling from Guam. And they traveled more than 8,000 miles before landing back on the Rock, another name for Guam. Though some autopilot slumber was possible, even before encountering the enemy, the handling of a B-52 was immensely demanding. One pilot said, unlike a high-performance fighter, the old B-52 takes a lot of old-fashioned muscle power to fly. It's like driving an 18-wheel truck without power steering, car brakes, or automatic transmission in downtown Washington during the rush hours. Yeah, that'll put things in perspective. B-52s were called buffs, big, ugly, fat fellers, or a parade of elephants. What's more, a lot of those B-52s were shot down. And what made that frustrating and nerve-wracking and so terrifying for some of the pilots is that even though the officers flying them suggested alternative flight paths to avoid the ground surface-to-air missiles that were coming their way, the higher-ups, who were not higher up in the planes, but just higher up in the organizational structure, said, well, that's not the way we do it. One way in and one way out. Well, 
When the B-52s were traveling one way in and one way out, of course, the North Vietnamese, the ground forces there, they got wise to the B-52 flight pass, which made the B-52s somewhat flying ducks. And Hastings goes on to describe the loss of morale and the cause of it. And I think this is such a valuable observation and commentary for anyone leading a group of people toward an objective. Listen to this. Back at base, between missions, frustration, exhaustion, and stress were vented in familiar ways. By the second day of linebacker, said Robert Clark, when a man walked into the Anderson Officers Club, you could smell the fear. Guys were hanging on to each other and just revalidating the fact they're still alive. There was heavy drinking and some fights. Christmas trees and sea marker dye were tossed into the pool. Flares were fired on the golf course. A life raft exploded into inflation on the dance floor. John Bisher said, If you're a prisoner on death row, you're pretty free to do what you want. The attitude was they can't do anything to you. They're not going to send you home. Mark Clodfelter has written that a key factor in plummeting morale was the failure of U.S. political and military leadership to articulate exactly what the crews needed to do to achieve success. They could see no end to the missions that they flew. A key factor in plummeting morale was, he writes, the failure of U.S. political and military leadership to articulate exactly what the crews needed to do to achieve success. You know, one of the most oft-quoted verses of Scripture is Proverbs 29:18, where there is no vision, the people perish. Well, the writer is talking about prophetic vision from God. In other words, a clear word from God. So a better translation is, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But I think there's application with respect to strategic vision as well. If people don't have clarity, they wander about metaphorically and practically, and morale drops. So my aha moment was a question. Can the people I lead articulate exactly what they need to do to achieve success? Oh, sure, of course they can. Really? Have you asked them? Well, not lately. So that's exactly what I intend to do. Morale plummets when the path to success is fuzzy and foggy. People need to know what to do. So do your people, and by that could be the people in your business, the people in your family, the people on your team, the people who are a part of your work unit, do they know what is necessary to achieve success? Don't assume they do. Ask them and then be prepared to listen and adjust. And that's my thought on my walk with Max Hastings and his exceptionally great volume, Vietnam, An Epic Tragedy. Now here's my question. What will you do with that thought on your walk through life today? <music>